Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Ich warte seit Wochen auf diesen Tag und tanz vor Freude über den Asphalt. Als wär's ein Rhythmus, als gäb's ein Lied. Hello and welcome to Gegenpressing, the Bundesliga podca podcast from the Football Grad Network. My name is Manuel Feit and like every week I'm joined by Stefan Bienkowski. Stefan, how's it going? Yeah, I'm doing very, very well. How are you? Yeah, good, really good. And um, like every week, you know, I I go into the show when I prepare the show and I'm not quite sure what we're talk, going to talk about and write down all my notes. But I feel like this week, not only we had did we have a ton to talk about already going into Sunday because we record this on a Sunday, but just as we are going to record this, a bombshell. And I'm not very much surprised i'm maybe a little surprised by the timing of it but i think we've seen this coming for some time but vfl wolfsburg have fired head coach mark van bommel now that's not a huge shock in terms of the result but are you surprised by the timing it certainly is an interesting one um I mean, his appointment in general was an interesting one, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, but I think what, I mean, obviously their statement read, if you read between the lines, I guess like every um, club sat, whenever a, a club do sack their head coach, as long as same sort of lines, you know, he wasn't doing enough basically to warrant his position. But I think with Van Bommel, he was such a bizarre appointment in the first place uh, that he had to basically hit the ground running and he basically had to prove himself to Wolfsburg that he was better than his reputation as a head coach had suggested because he didn't have a very good coaching record going into this job. Now, he started quite well. Uh, you know, Wolfsburg kicked off with, you know, I think four wins out of four in the Bundesliga. Um, an unlucky draw against Lille and you kind of thought, okay, things are, things are going fine here. But... You know, Veghar starts stop scoring goals. The team kind of stopped creating chances, and very quickly the kind of wheels came off this team. And I think probably Wolfsburg have decided to act now because their Champions League group is still in the balance. Um, they're not, you know, truly bottom of the Bundesliga by any means. You know, there's still only about four points between them and top four uh, after Leverkusen's draw with Clone. Uh, and there's still plenty for the club to kind of claw things back. So, you know, on one hand, Van Bommel was only given 13 games. And, you know, you could maybe argue that's not enough. And um, perhaps he should have been given more. But then on the other hand, you can maybe argue that this was a very bizarre appointment in the first place. And maybe Wolfsburg appreciated that. And they realized quite early on that he maybe didn't have the tactical nous or the confidence to suggest that he knew how to turn things around so uh, I, guess, I guess in two ways I'm surprised but also that I'm not surprised because I think a lot of people thought it was only a matter of time before Van Bommel did crash and burn at Wolfsburg and maybe it just came a little sooner than we all expected yeah I think that I look at Jörg Schmatke the director of sport and then there's of course sporting director Marcel Schäfer 
And um, since the two have been in, in charge of sporting decision-making, Wolfsburg has done quite a lot of things right. And they were one of the more active teams in the transfer market last when, last summer. I, in my opinion, have done a very good job strengthening this team. I think all they brought in all the right players, right? Mm. And um, I think in Oliver Glasner, they had a perfect coach for this team. And I understand that the relationship between Schmatke and Oliver Glasner was a difficult one. And that because of that, the they couldn't continue on despite Glasner leading this team to a Champions League spot. And then Schmatke, who I personally think he's an interesting personality because he does always find the most interesting coaches and the right selection, right? Even if his personality often clashes with these very, very same people, Bruno Labbadia before that was a good example, right? And was also mm -hmm. quite successful at the club. Yeah. And so I almost wonder if Schmatke this time didn't follow his instinct and got someone who he actually gets along with. And it was never the really the right choice. And there was a, there's a couple moments for me that stand out where I thought, okay, well, this is not going to work out. The first one is that substitution error that cost Wolfsburg the first round of the DFB Pokal against Preussen Münster, you know, where they make an extra substitution. And um, that is an error that, a, that you can't make. You cannot make that error, right? You cannot go out of the cup because you couldn't count. And Schmatke made that comment. He pretty much said exactly that. And then that game against Red Bull Salzburg midweek, where they got dismantled by yes, a brilliant Salzburg side. I we have to you know I we have to admit that we have to say Salzburg is probably one of those clubs that play in a smaller league, but um, have probably developed into a team that, despite playing in a smaller league, are a real opponent in the Champions League for any any of the big teams. So you know you, you can't you can't really say, well, this is a small team, we need to beat them. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, this was the first defeat by a German Bundesliga team in the Champions League to an Austrian side. Mm -hmm. And I actually kind of thought, oh, well, Van Bommel's gone here, there and then. Stefan, I thought he was gone I, yeah. after that result because Salzburg were just, in every aspect of the game, they were better. They were better coached. They had more control of the midfield. Their structure was better. And every player seemed to know what, what to do. And hmm. I didn't get that sense from Wolfsburg um, at all. I didn't get the sense that this was a team that, were, that knew what they, were going, what they were doing. Which, of course, now leads to the question. <laughs> and we both probably have our respective Transfermarkt sites open looking at available coaches. Who's going to take over this team, Stefan? Do you know, it's a really good question. I mean, I think you probably have... Um... The classic examples, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Tedesco gets mentioned. I wouldn't be surprised if Lucien Favre gets mentioned. Uh, you know, maybe we could even have like Javi Alonso pop back up. Remember when he was linked to the Gladbag job? Um, you know, just when you were talking there, I was actually thinking this is probably the kind of job that Jesse Marsh should have had before he moved on to a club like Leipzig. Um, you know, it's maybe that kind of seems like a club that's kind of really good sort of um, kind of platform for a manager to come into the Bundesliga. Now, I know that's literally what Van Bommel's done and he's failed, but I mean, like, 
I mean, a really talented young coach who's proved themselves in their own kind of domestic uh, league who can come into Wolfsburg, prove themselves, and then maybe use Wolfsburg as a stepping club. And I don't think that's it's not hugely insulting to Wolfsburg. I think Wolfsburg fans can appreciate that if you do very well there, you do end up going to Bayern or the Premier League or whatever else, or Dortmund, whoever else. So they should be looking for that kind of profile manager. Um, and, and you know, they should maybe push the boat out because at the end of the day, they do have a very, very good squad here. Uh, you know, and they have Lacroix, who's maybe one of the best up-and-coming central defenders. I still think Castiles is one of the best goalkeepers in the league. You've got Mbappé, Baku, Max Arnold, uh, Weghorst, you know, even Jonathan Brooks, who maybe is a bit off this season, he's proved himself year on year as a quality central defender in the Bundesliga. So they do have comfortably a top four squad, in my opinion. So maybe maybe now's a good time for them to kind of sit back and have a good think about it and think, right, we want we don't want to just hire, you know, your kind of bog standard Bundesliga coach who's been around the he's been around a lot, he's done a lot of different positions, had a lot of different positions, a lot of different German clubs. And, you know, they're very comfortable mid-table. They don't want a coach who'll be comfortable mid-table. This team should be pushing for top four. Um, I don't know if that is Lucien Favre. Maybe maybe it is. Um, but um, I, I'm, I'm, no one immediately comes to mind for me, partially because I found out about Van Bommel leaving 10 minutes ago. So I'm still trying to take that in at the moment. Uh, but does anyone else pop into your head? Tedesco maybe is actually an interesting one because I think a lot of people expected him to maybe fall back into a job in the summer and he never did after coming back from Moscow, didn't he? So he would be a really interesting one. Felix Magad is available. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> yeah, that would be very entertaining. I'll give you that. No, but Tedesco is not a bad child. And uh, I think Favre is probably the logical one that they're going to cycle back to. Mm. Um, I think Peter Bosch has a job. You know, the, the, the league likes to recycle some of these coaches. Mm. And I, I would like them to think outside the box. Maybe they will. Um, you know, maybe they find someone in, in their own academy setup. Um, also, they could go to another league. You know, they, they like poach. German Bundesliga teams like to poach co- coaches from the leagues around them. So the Netherlands, right? Um, Switzerland, Austria, mm-hmm. um, maybe in Scandinavia as well. So um, maybe some one of those coaches um, is available. You know, the thing too, and this is, I, I don't know yet who that could be, but I think Schmatke doing this now suggests to me that he has someone in mind. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, you don't do this without a plan, mm-hmm. not in a snap decision like that. And it'd be interesting to see who that is. Uh, I think I wouldn't be surprised if this actually emerges very quickly. And mm-hmm. they've already have someone identified that they're going to bring in right away. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's going to be an interesting one to follow because Wolfsburg are a very interesting club with a lot of resources and a lot of very good players at the moment. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if they right away find someone already have someone in mind. Could I, can I throw another name in there? Maybe Roger Schmidt. Yeah, I he's, just thought I mean, about that too. He, he he's possibly quite comfortable at PSV, uh, but 
you know, that's a league which Ajax seem to be considerably in front uh, in terms of resources, in terms of personnel. Um, you know, he may feel he's done all. Like, I know he's, I know he's only there very recently, so it's not as if he's been there for a number of years. But he might be desperate to get back into the Bundesliga. He might feel he has to prove something once again in the Bundesliga. So, you know, he might be an interesting one. He's obviously not a coach who's averse to working at, shall we say, um, what's the best word to describe this? Unfashionable clubs in Germany. You know, he's worked at mm. Leverkusen, obviously. He's worked at RB Salzburg and Augsburg, in Augsburg, in, uh, in Austria. Uh, so, you know, it's not as if he would have, he's, he's, he's not perhaps like a Lucien Favre. Um, or Christian Strike, who might have moral issues with working for Volkswagen or something like that. So uh, he's an interesting one, perhaps. And um, as we speak, Roger Schmidt's PSV Eindhoven is losing to uh, Ajax. Yeah. 1-0 in the Eredivisie. Um, you know, he's done quite, despite everything, I know people, I know some, and weirdly enough, I know quite a lot of PSV fans, and um, they're not always happy with him. But, you know, he's collected 2.11 points on average there mm-hmm. at PSV. That's that's pretty good. The Eredivisie is a very good league. And I think, you know, that's that's an interesting one um, for sure. You know who else I thought of? Niko Kovac. Yeah, possibly. Right. Probably also very comfortable in Monaco at the moment, but... Yeah. A chance to go back to Germany? Hmm. I think, yeah, I, I would say he's probably more comfortable at Monaco just because he seems to have things going quite well there. Yeah. Uh, but, um, but yeah, he's also another one who maybe feels he does have to prove himself in the Bundesliga again at some point. But, yeah, like you said, it depends if Wolfsburg already has someone in mind. You'd, you'd like to think they would rather than just decide to sack Van Bommel and then, and then literally doing what we were doing now and going through lists of names and... <laughs> Wondering if yeah. it'd be interesting in moving to the outskirts of Berlin. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the beauty about Wolfsburg. It's an hour hour ICE ride to Berlin. Yeah. So quick. Of course, the downside is um, sometimes the ICE forgets to stop there and go straight <laughs> through the train station. It's happened to me once. It's not Which is such a weird thing because you really cannot miss Wolfsburg. As you as you go past it, because there is a kind of apocalyptically huge Volkswagen factory there to greet everyone who gets there. I have a story about this. So my dad actually built the Autostadt. That was one of his big projects. So I spent quite a lot of time there, and they wanted to put a restaurant that was hanging right below the Volkswagen logo at that factory. That was part of the plan. It got scrapped because it's too dangerous. Uh-huh. Anyways, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> I'm giving away Volkswagen secrets here on a podcast about football. Um, I want to really briefly talk about Freiburg because they are such a good story and they don't get the attention that they deserve in so mm-hmm. many ways, um, mainly because they just do such a good job. And I look at Christian Streich and may, Wolfsburg probably wish they could hire him. There's no way they're going to get him. I don't think anyone is ever getting Christian Streich. Bayern Munich um, revealed, Uli Hoeneß revealed just a few days ago that they were looking at hiring Christian Streich at one moment, at one point. I don't think he's going, I don't think Streich is going anywhere ever. I think he, he loves it too much. At, I can just imagine Bayern. him at Bayern Munich and then every winter he refuses to go to the training camp in Dubai. 
Yeah. <laughs> Can't imagine that would work very well at Bayern Munich. Yeah, because he's a very political man, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Uh, um, you know, which is great. Uh, if you're a Freiburg fan, you absolutely adore it. And I think a lot of kind of neutral fans in the Bundesliga adore it as well. But they have been absolutely incredible. Yeah. In, I, I'm just... This is a club that just exists to develop talent. You know, they're quite frank and honest about it. They don't have a huge budget. They don't have... Freiburg is one of the most beautiful cities in Germany, but it's also not the biggest, right? So they don't have that corporate firepower behind them. Mm. But they do everything right. I mean, not, they, they, they don't... Even if they don't have a good season, they still do everything right because they're always in the Bundesliga. Mm. You know, for a club of this stature to always be in the Bundesliga and every second or third year their team develops enough to do what they're doing this year, which is to compete for a European place. Mm-hmm. And I think they are a competitor for the European place. What do you think? No, absolutely. I mean, I think they've had a lot of success with that kind of 3-4-3 three, three formation. Um, I, you know, I kind of tweeted out um, when they when they took the lead uh, this weekend, uh, I kind of tweeted out about how they moved into third place and they were only, I mean, let me just quickly check yeah they're only you know three points off Bayern Munich so I kind of took a screenshot of Bayern Dortmund Freiburg at the top of the league and said you know and people say there's no and and people say there's no title race and obviously because it's Twitter I had a million people call the Bundesliga Farmers League and say Bayern are going to pull ahead and then I had to basically correct myself saying guys I was just trying to show Freiburg some love here because it's just incredible that I know we're only nine games in but the fact that they've managed to keep pace with Dortmund and Bayern and they've managed to do so without losing a single game. Uh, you know, the only team in the division who've managed that so far. Not only that, they've conceded fewer goals than Bayern. They've conceded almost, Dortmund have almost conceded three times as many goals as them. And I think that's kind of the main thing um, which kind of defines how well they've been this season. I mean, Christian Strikes built lots of teams over the years and some of them have been very defensively focused. I think this is probably one of them themselves. Um, you know, they've got the fourth best expected goals against in the division. They've got the best defensive record in the division. But I think what's really interesting is that they have the seventh highest shots in the division. And while that may seem almost um, you know, counterintuitive or um, hip, not hypocritical, but almost kind of contradicts the two, the two previous stats, what I think that really means is they're very, very good at playing that low block. They're very good at kind of defending their own box. More often than not, teams are just kind of frustratingly forced into trying long shots. Um, in Leinhardt and uh, Schlotterbeck, they have two really great central defenders who kind of form that kind of back three. Both of them are second and third in the division, respectively, for interceptions. Schlotterbeck's top for shots blocked. You know, so th- this is just kind of Freiburg doing what Freiburg do well, in my opinion. Um, you know, it would be interesting to see what they can do when they come up against like some really, really good teams uh, and where they can kind of go the distance in this team. I mean, I know they've obviously already played Dortmund, but they've still have to play Bayern, which, and, and that's the key thing. Uh, you know, they only managed to take a point off Leipzig, which right now is not that impressive, but they have had a relatively decent, easy start to the season, um, in my opinion, Dortmund game aside. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if, you know, that can kind of keep going. And I hope it does because I, I don't. You, you very rarely find anyone with a bad thing to say about Freiburg. Uh, there's a lot of love for the area, a lot of love for the old stadium as well. So, yeah, may it may it continue. 
Yeah, I hope so. I, I always like seeing them in the top. Of course, every time then they do reach Europe, the best players get poached and then they have a year that's complicated for them that follows, right? So yeah. we'll see if that, that cycle continues. Um, you mentioned Dortmund. I think <laughs> we need to move on to Dortmund. And I had a lot of thoughts about the game against Ajax. The first thing I want to point out that I thought Ajax were brilliant. They were, in the sum of their parts, everything that you expect from a world-class team. It's the sort of performance that you see from Bayern Munich day in and day out. They All the pieces seemed to move well together and everything was just perfectly integrated. There was, there was players outperforming, you know, outperforming the value uh, Anthony comes to mind who mm. when you talk to people that followed his career previously are surprised by his development at Ajax but Ajax is so very good at identifying players that they need bring them into the system replace someone that they've just sold and make them look great and work make them look like world star players which they usually are and also in Eric Ten Hag, and I said this kind of snippishly after the 4-0 victory, which was Dortmund's highest defeat in the Champions League, um, away defeat in the Champions League. Mm -hmm. I almost said snippishly, the coach in the other dugout, Eric Ten Hag, mm -hmm. is probably the coach that Dortmund needed to hire. Yeah. And I know this is still early, and I like Mark Rose quite a bit, but you almost get the sense, don't you, that maybe and there were rumors about Ten Hag. And I know the Rose project project is still in the beginning. And this is, Rose is the coach who they now have, and that needs to work. But a game like that makes you think, right? Because Dortmund had no midfield. Their the game plan seemed to throw the ball wide forward to Haaland. Mm -hmm. Haaland holds it down. The rest of the team moves up. And then somehow the ball goes back to Haaland and he scores. Yeah, and, and, so. it, and an interesting thing throughout that match is that it felt like a team that knew exactly what to do and a team that didn't know what to do. And I thought the really interesting thing was that it was that night and there was that result that you start to see a lot of people on Twitter, Dortmund fans, really going for Marco Rosa, uh, which has kind of continued right through to the weekend uh, leading up to the game. I mean, obviously they went on to beat Armenia Bielefeld and it ended up being quite a comfortable match, but the whole bizarre nature of Erling Haaland's injury, the way that the club seemed to be dealing with it, seems to be very peculiar. Um, was his injury aggravated from him being rushed back against Ajax, where he was unable to do very very much because Dortmund spent the whole game basically in their own half? Um, and it did almost feel as if, you know, Ten Hag was kind of giving Marco Rosa and Dortmund a lesson in how to be a properly coached side. And you know, it, it did certainly, it certainly felt like a game in which, you know, I, I said in this podcast last week that I thought Dortmund actually looked really, really good against Mainz. And I thought they did. But, and to be fair, in the Ajax game, they're missing a number of key players. Some players who even did play didn't look fit. But I felt like that was a game that really kind of underlined the issues in this Dortmund side. You know, I was really taken aback by just how poor Dortmund's defense looked. I felt like 
this is maybe the first game, except for maybe the Super Cup game against Bayern, even though I thought Dortmund played quite well in that, that you kind of look at his back line, you're thinking, right, maybe is it maybe Mats Hummels is beginning to look his age. You know, he's hasn't he's very rarely finishes a full game for Dortmund this season. He's struggling with knee injuries. And then even when he is on the pitch, he doesn't really look himself. And alongside Hummels, it's just a constantly rotating cast of players. Some of them are defenders, some of them are midfielders, some some of them aren't really performing very well at all. And it does seem as though so much of Dortmund's energy goes into what happened with Erling Haaland, what's going to happen with Jude Bellingham, blah, 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 blah. It feels as though very little is actually put into what is going on in defence here. And I think Cobell, to be honest, who's been a very good goalkeeper for Dortmund, has maybe masked a lot of that for them this season, even though they have such a terrible defensive record in the Bundesliga. He's actually played very well in most games, at least most of the games I've watched. So that that Ajax game definitely made, I think that's the kind of game that made a lot of Dortmund fans. And hopefully the club itself and Marco Rose and his coaching staff sit up and think, right, this is where we have clear issues and this is where we're really going to have to fix things because... Yeah, okay, maybe Haaland is out injured until December and we have to work on that. But there's no point in Dortmund trying to make up Haaland's goals if they're still going to concede two or three every game. Yeah, I agree with everything that you said. And it also got me thinking because last week we spent quite a bit of time talking about Karim Adeyemi and the choice that he has to make, right? And the choice that he has to currently make is to either go to Dortmund or Bayern. And this is a 30 to 40 million euro transfer that we're talking about, right? Mm. And it got me thinking, maybe the money for Dortmund is better spent on a defender. Oh, yeah. Right? Because they have so much firepower and there's so many young players that are, that are coming in. And um, I, I feel like Dortmund because of the club that they have become, which is essentially just below that premium class of world top of the top clubs, right? Um, where players go to make that final step. But a lot of those players are always attacking players, mm-hmm. right? And that, that makes you think that um, they're almost damned to sign Adeyemi to make money through him because that's their model. Yeah. But I personally think if they are going to make a next step as a club and move away from that, and at some point they will have to move away from this. They will have to. You know, they. I don't care about COVID and all that other stuff that's happening. But the plan was always for them to use that model to catch up to Bayern. At some point, you have to stop selling your top players. And I don't think Haaland is going to be the one day where it's going to stop. But at some point, it has to stop. And... You know, maybe signing Adeyemi, well, you know you're going to lose to another club down the road, mm-hmm. isn't the right move. Maybe instead take 40 millions and buy two defenders. Yeah, absolutely. Because you look at that defense, the, whole, the entire back line for Dortmund is just full of compromises. Um, you know, you have Thomas Munier, who I have praised this season. He's, he's kind of looked back to his best, but... Munier at his very best is an attacking fullback who isn't very good at defending. Uh, Nico Schultz is another one who's maybe, you know, has certain attributes that are good, some that aren't. Mats Hummels, in my opinion, is another one of those players. So, you know, maybe, and maybe this is a quite a, a novel concept for Dortmund, maybe they just go out and buy a 
a 28-year-old central defender, put 30 or 40 million behind it. A guy who they aren't going to sign just with the concept of selling him one day. Maybe they just, I mean, I know that's kind of what they did with Hummels a few years ago, but maybe that's exactly what they have to do again. They have to bring in a defender who will do something for them now, not a defender who will develop into a good player, but a player who's already good enough. Um, And there are plenty of central defenders on the market who aren't picking up game time uh, or who are looking for moves in the summer who could maybe move in January who can make a huge difference. Um, and I think I think that would do Dortmund the world of good, especially if by the end of this season, Marco Rosa's kind of having to have a very frank and uncomfortable conversation with Mats Hummels by telling him that, you know, you, look, you've been a great servant to this club, but, um, you know, your knee injuries, you're struggling to finish games. Um, we really have to start planning this next team without you. Yeah. It's an interest. It is definitely an interesting one. Um, scouting defenders is, of course, a lot harder than scouting attackers. So I'm I'm curious to see if Dortmund even have it in the DNA to sign and find a proper defender. Um, that's that's of course a completely different question. But um, let's move on to a story that has been a bit of an open secret among those that have covered Bayern Munich in Munich. Um, a lot of us knew, including myself. Unfortunately, this podcast doesn't have the legal department that Bill have. So Bill broke it on a Friday night. Conveniently on a Friday night, I would want to say. Best time possible. That Joshua Kimmich is unvaccinated. I when I first heard about it, um, it was one of those things that you don't want to believe, because obviously Joshua Kimmich runs the kick out Corona campaign, and before before we talk about that, it's a kick out Corona isn't just a vaccination campaign, right? Um, it is a campaign that's supposed to support all mechanisms in the fight against Corona of which vaccination is a big part of, um, especially now, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I think this is where most people were the most upset about, that he was sort of this face of this campaign together with Leon Goretzka, who, by the way, is vaccinated. And um, basically comes out saying he's unvaccinated because he has worries about the long-term effects of the vaccination. Now, Stefan, um, we both are fully vaccinated. I'm, I'm disclosing that, right? <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I believe in the vaccine. I think people should get vaccinated. I think this is our way out of the pandemic. I live in a city where 90% of the population is vaccinated. It's actually higher now. I think we hit 95%. And it has given us back all our freedoms. And... I think this is, I think the problem I have with Kimmich is not necessarily that he is just unvaccinated, but that he's also run this campaign. And then on top of that, went to that children's hospital, right? As an unvaccinated person. And I have a lot of problems with that. I don't know how you feel about it. Yeah, it's a really tricky topic because um, on the one hand, you kind of want to let people make up their own mind in these things to an extent. But you also kind of hope that they'll follow the, the the science behind it. And 
I struggle to understand when Kimmich says, you know, he doesn't believe or he doesn't trust the, the science behind it yet. He wants to see what the long-term effects of these things are. Um, you know, I, I, I do struggle to sympathize with that. I saw, I also saw, struggle to sympathize with his, you know, because when he was, when he was, when he, when he explained himself after the Hoffenheim game on Saturday, his argument was, well, you know, different professions, demand different things and I'm a footballer and I play in the fresh air every day, uh, you know, and some, to me, that's not really an excuse. Some things maybe are an excuse. You know, his argument was that, you know, uh, unlike other people who aren't vaccinated and perhaps do run the risk of catching it and spreading it, he does get tested every two or three days at Bayern Munich. And he said, you know, I understand that, normal people don't have the means to test themselves every two or three days with a PCR test or whatever else he at Bayern Munich does because Bayern Munich paid for that. So there, there is maybe some logic to how he justified it, but at the heart of it all is him basically saying he doesn't really believe in the science. Um, and, you know, the Premier League has recently came out with, you know, the amount of people who are double vaccinated in the Premier League and it's quite low. It's maybe like... I can't remember if it's 60 or 80%, but it's actually just lower than basically the num- the average of people 18 to 30 in, in England who are, who are vaccinated. So there's no great kind of impetus from players in the Premier League either to, um, you know, to, to go up, out and ab- go above and beyond to get vaccinated beyond people their own age and other professions. And, uh, you know, kind of talking off air with you in the past and speaking to other journalists who talk about this, I have wondered if there is a kind of scepticism among footballers, not perhaps so much of the, of the of the science behind it, but, you know, they maybe would have heard anecdotally from family or friends that, you know, I, I had the second jab and I, I felt terrible for three or four days. I had, I had flu-like symptoms for a week. Uh, and I did wonder if a lot of players were putting that off because for a footballer to be out for a week or two of flu-like symptoms means you can lose your spot in the team. Uh, it could mean, you know, your good run of form suddenly comes to an end. It could mean, you know, I could make a two-week injury or a one-week injury is a big deal for a footballer at the very highest level. So part of me did wonder if a lot of it come, came comes down to that. And that's why there hasn't been as, as, as high as an uptick in vaccinations among footballers. Um, I think with Kimmich and I think with some other players, a lot of it also comes down to concerns about, you know, um, maybe minor heart uh, problems from particularly in men if they if they take one of uh, one of uh, a specific vaccine and I think that's also been proved wrong as well. But so mm. I, again, I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm, I'm certainly not trying to justify Kimmich's uh, decision here. I think I think uh, I think he's probably been quite obtuse and I think he's probably been quite um, stubborn with it. And, and, and to his credit, he has he did say after the game that you you know I might there's no there's nothing to say I won't get it done soon, but. Uh, he is a leader. He's a leader in the Bayern team. He's a leader in the German team. Um, and he's done a lot of work to try and get Germans vaccinated. So uh, it is slightly hypocritical. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah, this the study about the, the heart issue, right? In Young Man um, was a Canadian study. The CBC ran an article a few weeks about, ago um, and the study has been retracted because it's based on a calculation error. So, so, so much to that, um, and, you know, peer reviewed studies come out all the time and then have to get retracted. I think in this heated climate where there is a large group of people out there who 
don't want to be vaccinated and they gobble up all these anti-vax staff on social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram, where footballers spend a lot of time. Mm. They, they, they snap up that little piece of information and they don't understand how science works and how peer review studies are out there to be disputed. And so the stuff makes it public and, um, you know, it's not supposed to a peer reviewed study, even if it's peer reviewed is not a final study, you know, it's supposed to be out there to be challenged. And of course, we're now in a climate where, where that's very difficult because of this high anti-vax sentiment. And I'm not saying Kimmich is an anti-vaxxer. He himself said he's probably going to get it. And I'm pretty sure he's now going to get it now because <laughs> this is this is a disaster from uh, a public relations standpoint, right? So I'm pretty sure he's going to get it now. Um, we have to point out that 90% of Bundesliga players are vaccinated, including at Bayern Munich. There's a list that went around on Twitter. That list is fake. Um, I know who the other players are on the list. I don't have Bill's legal department. I'm not going to disclose it. It's not my story to tell. I'm pretty sure Bill is going to place the names of the list when it's convenient to them um, because that's what Bill does, um, that they're very good at this. They bombed this bomb. They dropped this bombshell on a Friday night. I'm pretty sure the next player that's going to come out is also going to be conveniently placed. And that's just what they do. And then it speaks for their media tactics as well, right? Um, in, in a lot of ways, which is a completely different story. But it's it's a really complicated topic on so many levels. And I personally wish that all the players in the Bundesliga were vaccinated because you look at you look at some of the rules that we now have in stadiums in Germany. Bayern Munich, for example, is going 2G, right? Which is the terms for genesen and geimpft. Um, there's 3G, genesen, geimpft, and getested. So, uh, so vaccinated, cured, and tested. Bayern have scrapped the testing requirement, which when you translate that to the players on the pitch, Kimmich currently wouldn't be allowed to play. Mm. And that is the whole hypocritical aspect of it, right? For... Um, Months Bundesliga teams have pushed to be allowed to play with full capacity under certain hygiene concepts. And that current hygiene concept is 2G, so tested and um, cured, which in Germany they can do because they can actually test antibodies in your blood. If you listen to this podcast from North America, in Canada, we don't even have the testing capacities to test whether you still have antibodies from your previous infection. Mm. Um in Germany, they have the capacity, which is why Germany is 2G and Canada is 1G, right? Here in Canada, if you're not vaccinated, you're not going, you're not setting a foot in a stadium either if you're an athlete or a, uh, a known person. That also means that some of the players that you're talking about, and uh, you, can, you can tell I've made a lot of phone calls for the last 24 hours because I really dived into the subject. A lot of players actually opted in Germany to take Johnson and Johnson. To, and this is to answer your 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 concern about being out, right? Because they a lot of players thought, okay, I'm going to take Johnson Johnson once. That means I only have the side effects once. The problem, of course, now was what's emerging with Johnson and Johnson, the one shot vaccine, is that the the likelihood of breakthrough cases is much higher. Mm -hmm. And now they are only going to need a second jab after all. Yeah. So uh, we're back to square one. Um, also, in some cases, players who have had COVID, and this is how Germany does it. And I know in some other jurisdictions around the world, it's different. 
But in Germany, if you had COVID, you will get one shot at first only. And only when your antibodies drop, will you get a second shot. Mm-hmm. So this is, some, for example, and I, I don't know whether that's 100% the case with Thomas Müller or not, but there is a possibility because Thomas Müller had it last year at the training camp in Qatar, uh, sorry, during the uh, Club World Cup, that he may have had only one shot, right? Um, so you, you have to you have to think about those things as well. Um, and some of the players who are not vaccinated might not be able to get the shot right now because Germany actually has rules about that as well. So I, I think these are all things that are important for the general context. Different jurisdictions have different rules, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I personally, you know, I think everyone has their own choice when it comes to the vaccine. But if you're the face of a media campaign and you are playing in a sport in a stadium that is currently under 2G, I personally think the athletes shouldn't be allowed to play. Yeah, I think I think, I think think that's also the main thing. Like, I know maybe Kimmich does have his own opinions on these things and you know, at the end of the day, you can only take a horse to water and you can't make it drink. So Bayern can't literally tie him to a table and stick the injection in him. But I think he and maybe other players should maybe consider just how privileged they are to be in the positions that they're in. Kimmich is unvaccinated. If he wasn't a footballer, he would not be able to travel around Europe for his job like he does, you know, for international duty, for Germany, whatever else, uh, for Champions League games for Bayern Munich. Uh, and as you said yourself, if he was a fan of Bayern Munich, he wouldn't be allowed in the stadium because he hasn't been vaccinated. So there's 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 the personal point of view with these things, but I think footballers also have to, and it's not just Kimmich. There's, there's there'll be there'll be thousands of footballers around Europe who haven't bothered to get vaccinated or have decided against it because they read something stupid online. Um, so I think it's it, it with these situations, it's probably worth them bearing in mind how fans feel about these things because. Unlike them, fans have to get vaccinated to have their, to do their jobs. They have to get vaccinated to go on holiday, whatever else, to see their families. Um, so because Kimmich is in a privileged position, he maybe hasn't had the same pressure put on him to get vaccinated. But um, now would be a good time for him to maybe consider what normal people have gone, have been going through for this pandemic and what normal people, even if they had their own concerns about the vaccination, have also done so because... It's literally what you have to do if you want to get on a plane um, if, in, in most countries anyway. Yeah, that's maybe my final point on this because maybe because I live in a place where it's very strict. And if you're not vaccinated in Canada, you're not setting foot on any federal transport. Hmm. You know, that, that's, that's the bottom line. Um, if you're not vaccinated you're not playing in a professional sport environment because, you know, you can't, it's not allowed. And you are certainly not crossing borders. It's already hard for vaccinated people to cross borders. You've probably seen my online fight with the government of Canada to doing PCR tests to even just go anywhere, um, even though I'm fully vaccinated. But, you know, that is just, and I think this goes back to the privilege point that you're making. The fact that the general population still has to deal with all the stuff, even though most of them are fully vaccinated and a football player enjoys all these freedoms because he's getting free tests from his football club, mm-hmm. that Bayern Munich are paying for these tests. I tell you now, a test on the open market and Germany is going to experience this, experience this soon because the rules are going to change. If you're unvaccinated in Germany, you will have to pay for those tests. Here we have to pay for those tests. Those tests are between $150 and $360. Yeah. Every time, 
you know, and that's a lot of money for a normal person. And um, I think that is something that he needs to consider that his privileged position allows him to make this choice, a choice that endangers the people around him, including the kids in the hospital that he went to. And I think, I think too, that Bayern are quite upset about this. I'm pretty sure they got a lot of interesting calls over the last 24 hours from their various media partners and economic and commercial partners. But also the matter of fact is that Julian Nagelsmann is currently in quarantine because someone brought COVID into the dressing room. Mm-hmm. And the word at Bayern is that they think it was one of the unvaccinated. <laughs> the plot thickens. So, yeah, let's leave it at that. Uh, I'm pretty sure there's going to be more stuff coming out. I, I'm pretty sure, thankfully, Builder out there who can drop the stuff at their whim. They don't have to worry about a lot of things that we have to worry about. I know there's more out there. So, guys, listen to this podcast. Follow Build because they will drop the stuff and they will drop it when it's very convenient. And um, knowing the names on the list, I, I have a good, pretty good idea what's going to come next. But um, final one on this one. And this this game just finished the Rhein Derby. Stefan, Leverkusen were up 2-0. Perfect for them to, to essentially drop uh, two points and finish the game 2-2, isn't it? Yeah, they're... they're, they're... We, we kind of spoke last week about how Leverkusen really have to be careful to make sure that they don't take that Bayern result and let it ruin their season. Uh, and if the last two games are really anything to go by, they may be okay. But, you know, they kind of pulled one back against Betis to draw 1-1. I know they didn't play a full-strength squad in that game, but this Cologne game just looked like it was a mess. They took off a number of key players and then... Cologne managed to get back into the match, which will be a huge kind of frustration for Leverkusen. But um, yeah, we'll just need to kind of see how they do. They've got Karlsruhe in the Pokal, and then they're playing Wolfsburg, who uh, will either continue to be managerless or could have a really impressive head coach in the sidelines at that point. So it's all to play for. But yeah, I think Leverkusen's season maybe hangs by the balance now. Yeah, we, we talked a lot about the response. And just before we went on this recording, it was 2-0. And I'm like, yeah, that result against Betis and now this. Okay, that's a good response. But all of a sudden, it's a, okay, a good result against Betis and an okay result in the derby. So I guess we'll see um, where their journey is going to take them. I, you know, they're no longer in that imaginary title, title race uh, that you posted online because they <laughs> dropped quite a bit out of it. Um Chris Williams, who used to be a regular on the show, would always say match day 10 is when he started looking at the table. We're pretty much there now. So uh, it's an, it's getting interesting now. We're getting to a point in the season where you can look at the table and you can maybe draw some interesting conclusions. But that's, you know, match day 10 is next week and that gives us something to talk about for next week. So let's, let's leave it at this, uh, guys. Until next week, auf Wiedersehen. Thank you for listening to Believe. 
You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.